Morning, church family. We're going to be in the book of Romans again, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. It is page 947 in the Bibles provided. Um, If you've heard me preach before, you know I struggle with getting the page number into my notes so I can share it with people. While I called in backup this time, my wife looked it up for me and she wrote it down but I still read the wrong page number. <laughs> so I clearly this is going to be something I struggle with. Let's start with verse 1. So what is the page number? 947. Okay. <laughs> I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. There's a lot to talk about in these eight verses. Leading up to chapter 12, Paul has been engaged in some pretty weighty intellectual discussion about grace, faith, and the law. And he had a very specific reason for writing this book in the first place. Across the world, the Jewish diaspora was very insular and independent. They were pretty much their own collective communities within the wider communities they lived in. And the Jews were often looked down upon by the Gentiles that they lived among. And then suddenly, these groups have been thrown together by the same faith in Jesus Christ. And in many cases, old prejudices have been brought along with them into the church. The church in Rome didn't have the written New Testament as we have it today, and they had not yet been visited by an apostle, the spiritual leaders of the church. Paul has plans to travel to Rome, but he can't go quite yet, and he's hearing about things going on, so he writes this letter to pave the way for his eventual trip. Paul was writing to a church divided, the Gentile Christians were disdainful of the Jewish Christians' cultural practices. And the Jewish Christians were trying to figure out how their traditions and history meshed with their new faith in Jesus Christ. And the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul addresses these problems. He makes sound theological arguments for the necessity of faith in Christ and God's plan for salvation and righteousness for all mankind, Jew and Gentile alike. And now in chapter 12, we see Paul turn from purely theological discussion to practical application. And we're going to start with the first two verses, and these form the 
pivot point of that transition. So I'm going to read them again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as Paul pivots from discussion to application, he invokes God's mercy as the reason by which everything else follows. So let's take just a moment and reflect on what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about God's plan for our salvation. God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus, to earth, incarnated as 100% God, 100% man, to serve as the ultimate sacrifice, the final payment for our sins. Jesus was crucified on the cross. He died but was raised to life three days later, forever conquering sin and death. Because of his sacrifice, we can live in community with God who sends his Holy Spirit to live in us. Paul is using the power of the gospel to appeal to the Roman church and by the grace of God also to us. Paul says we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. This echoes the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. And he, Jesus, said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Paul is not mincing words about the cost of following Christ. It is a commitment that must be renewed every day. It is a commitment up to and possibly, hopefully not, but possibly including death similar to that which Jesus suffered. We are to be a living sacrifice to God. In the next statement, Paul says we are to be holy and acceptable to God. Now, wait a second. Paul has just finished explaining to us, he took 11 chapters, two-thirds-ish of the Book of Romans, explaining to us how we are all sinners saved by grace. That even with our best efforts, we cannot be holy and acceptable to God. But let's not be confused by this part of the verse. Paul isn't contradicting himself. This is where we need to read the Book of Romans and the Bible itself as a whole to best understand it. Paul tells us we are to be living sacrifices, and in that next statement, holy and acceptable, he reminds us of what he's already talked about before. In Romans 3, verses 23 and 24, Paul said, all have sinners, all have, sorry, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is our daily act of spiritual worship to surrender ourselves to the will of God. But even if we could somehow manage to do this to perfection, it does not negate our need to be saved. 
In verse two, Paul encourages us to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Do we have any competitive people in here? Good number of people. I'm a fairly competitive person. I like to find loopholes and rules. When I was in youth group, I always asked about eight different follow-up questions whenever someone was explaining the rules of the game. Um, Because I liked finding the the, the loopholes. You had to have airtight rules or, you know, it's... But I, as much fun as that is, I cannot stand cheating. I cannot stand breaking the rules. I, I feel that it ruins the fun of the competition. I had a, a friend in college who played ultimate frisbee uh, for the school club. And one day he was talking to one of his teammates about strategy, and I was sitting there probably doing homework and half listening. And they started talking about strategic fouls. And I'd never heard of a strategic foul. I knew what a foul was. You know, you bump into somebody, knock them over, and you get a penalty, right? So, but so it sounds like kind of an oxymoron to me, an intentional accident. So I had to ask, what is a strategic foul? And he said, well, you're allowed three fouls in the game before you get thrown out. So each player can make up to two intentional fouls at strategic moments to affect the play of the game. Isn't that like kind of like cheating? Like, well, everyone does it, just part of how you play the game. Like, can you imagine if a game like Monopoly had a rule where, uh, you know, if you forget to pay the bank three times, you get thrown out of the game. This guy would intention, int- intentionally forget to pay the bank to get that little edge over the competition. He had totally lost sight of the whole point of having the three-strike rule for fouls. It's not, um, it's not leeway to foul somebody. But I have to ask myself, how often do I do this in everyday life? I try and see exactly where the line is and I edge as close as I can toward it without going over. It's okay if I drive just a little bit fast, right? Just a little bit. Or get to work, you know, just a few minutes late. Is that a big deal? Has anyone ever heard of the show Hole in the Wall? It's a game show, a few people. So it's a game show where individuals or teams stand on a marker and then a wall with a very specific cutout comes flying at them and they have like five, seven seconds to contort themselves into the shape of the hole or they get knocked in the water pit. I couldn't find a, like a good concise clip or else I would have shared that. D- d- does life feel like this sometimes? Like a situation comes rushing at you and you, you just have to react and try and like bend over backwards to fit and do it just the right way? I felt like this pretty often in college, if I'm gonna be honest. I was a computer science and film double major because I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Um, But I loved filmmaking. I loved making movies. And I decided I wanted to pursue a career doing it. So I spent as much time as possible helping other people on their projects, uh, volunteering 
uh, when there were other more professional projects going on. Um, there was just really one problem I kept running to again and again and again. Drugs. Uh, many of the students, graduates of CSU's film program, not, not all, I should be clear, not all, um, and uh, many of the semi-professionals I met, or pseudo-professionals might be a better word, um, were pretty casual drug users. Um, several times I had to leave sets because someone would start smoking marijuana while we worked. And one time I was like, dude, you know, this isn't cool. Like, he was like, okay, I'll stop. Well, a after that particular incident, I, I got blacklisted. No one wanted my help anymore. I had developed a reputation for zero, zero tolerance for drugs. Now, say I had taken a softer line. Well, as long as I don't smoke it, it's okay, right? After all, this is what I want to pursue as a career. Would God have given me the desire to pursue this career, to make movies, if he didn't want me to live in this kind of world? The world's kind of messy, right? We still have to live in the world. But this is a very dangerous line of thought. And the devil waved that one in my face a few times, tempting me to compromise. Now say I had taken that compromise. How long before I would make more compromises? You know, another little compromise, another little one, another one. And slowly the devil would have whittled away at my resolve, piece by piece, until I was fully conformed to whatever worldview was attractive to me. The Bible warns us against this mentality, charging us to not be conformed. Instead, we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Who here ate a muffin today? <laughs> Just me, okay. <laughs> Done! Yes, one other person. So, was that muffin always a muffin? Did that muffin fall from like a muffin tree? No, at point this muffin was once flour and sugar and yellow dye number two and a handful of other ingredients I'd probably rather not think about. And it had to all get mixed together and thrown into an oven and, you know, 10, 20, however many minutes later it comes out and it's a muffin. What was before is no longer there. It was transformed into the muffin. That can be like us. Some, some of, sometimes I feel a little half-baked, if I'm going to be honest. <laughs> but the kind of transformation Paul is talking about requires a level of activity on our part. When he says transformed by the renewal of our minds, we're not just sitting there and God's downloading stuff. Well, he is, but there's more to it than that. We need to study scripture and pray and have fellowship with other believers. These are the ways we renew our minds. And when we do this, God transforms us more into the image of his son. We are not the same as we were before. Psalm 1, the first two verses. Blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Resist conformity and embrace transformation. 
And in this process of daily transformation, Paul says we are able to test what God's will is. Not that we're testing God, but when we come across situations, we can test to see what God's will is in that situation, what the right thing to do is. I figured out that a career in the film industry was not actually what God had for me. But I didn't get to that realization out of some innate moral knowledge or anything born of myself. My life had to be anchored in the truth of the word of God for me to find my way through all that. We need to be careful that we don't become passive as Christians. This requires action on our part. And it's here where Paul finally makes the transition from intellectual discussion to practical application. In verse 3, the Bible says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Paul's first point, the very first statement he makes, translating grace and mercy and faith into action, is about humility. And really, this verse speaks to one of my own personal worst tendencies. Perhaps some of you can relate. I won't, I won't ask for hands, though. So just as an example, I'm at work, or it could be at the store, it could be anywhere. I run into someone I don't like very much. Maybe I don't agree with their worldview or their life choices, and they're kind of obnoxious about it. Or maybe something about their personality annoys me, or, you know, just don't mesh very well together. Whatever it is, internally I'm not very happy that I have to deal with this person. But regardless of how I feel, I do my best to treat them kindly and with respect. This is what we're supposed to do, right? But then the second I get away from them and I'm around people I trust, the mask comes off and I start complaining, like, you never guess who I ran in today. I had to talk to this person for 10 whole minutes. and I had things to do. I can say whatever I want about that person as long as it's around people I trust. As long as word doesn't get back to that person I'm bad-mouthing what I'm saying, there's no damage done, right? Or at least that's the lie I'd like to believe. So this verse is very convicting for me. It's in my nature to want to be superior to others. And the easiest way to feel superior is to put up. And for some reason, I get it in my head that because I do it privately, that I'm somehow better than a bully who does it publicly. But this is the very opposite of what the Bible says. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. I need this reminder. I need to remember the place I've come from. I once was lost in my sin, and without the light of Christ, I would still be stumbling around in the dark, completely lost. If I am to truly obey God and think of others more highly than myself, it needs to be more than lip service. It needs to be more than when other people are watching. I need to walk through life with complete humility. 
always remembering that I am a sinner saved by grace. Paul says we are to consider this with sober judgment. As far as I can tell, he's basically saying we can't blow this off. We need to take it seriously. The moment I find myself passing judgment on someone else for any reason, I need to take a step back and check myself and then try and see them through Jesus' eyes. The gospel of Jesus Christ is redemption and transformation for all sinners, for all sins. My sins don't separate me from God any less than any other person's. I need to be very, very careful that I don't try to make myself seem superior by putting others down no matter who it is. Even amongst fellow believers, you never know what a person could be struggling with. And if we condemn that person's struggle without knowing it, we could be driving a wedge between them and God. We need to take this charge very, very seriously. In Luke 22, verses 24 through 27, the disciples are having an argument, and Jesus is going to nip that in the bud. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he, Jesus, said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise a lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? one who reclines at the table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus took on the lowest role in all of human history, and we are to follow him by example. Paul also says we need to measure or we need to consider this with the measure of faith God has assigned, according to the measure of faith God has assigned. I just wanted to touch on this really briefly. Um, in the USFA, we have it written into the very fabric of our culture, and, and women are created equal. The notion of equality is often extended beyond just this academic idea into very practical areas of life. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But while we hold this idea of equality very dear, we have to acknowledge where we are different and adjust accordingly. We don't all have the same measure of faith. What may be easy for you could be very difficult for someone else and vice versa. There, there's, um, it's not in my notes and I should have looked it up. There's verses about how we're not supposed to be a stumbling block for one another. I listened to a pastor speak at a men's conference once. I don't remember his name, but at the time he was probably in his 60s. And he freely shared that he cannot handle unrestricted access to the internet. He doesn't carry smartphone, he doesn't use a computer unless it's on a very filtered network or completely shut off from the internet. He said, I know my weaknesses 
and I choose to run from the temptation rather than try and wrestle with it every day. He never explicitly said it was pornography that was the temptation he was running from, but it was pretty apparent in how he was saying it and what he was teaching on. That pastor was a man who did not think of himself more highly than he ought. Rather than try and run from his weaknesses or hide them, he confronts them openly. By his reckoning, access to all the knowledge and connectivity and all the wonderful things about the internet are not worth the risk of being tempted by the very dark and depraved things that are possible. He did not want to run the risk of falling to temptation. At the same time, he was not trying to force arbitrary restrictions on everyone else. He was not saying, because I am this weak, everyone else needs to abide by the same rule set I live by. He considered himself with sober judgment, and he found his self-discipline lacking, and he decided to walk a path that is very different from most of us today. And it makes me ask myself, how far am I willing to go to be obedient to the Lord? Is there an area of my life where I am overestimating the measure of faith? I think these are questions worth asking. Let's look at verses four through eight. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, or encourages, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal and the one who, act, who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. All that we talked about in verse 3, Paul connects directly to how we relate to each other as the church. Remember, Paul is trying to heal the division in the Roman church. He's fighting for unity amongst his fellow believers. Our call to be a living sacrifice, to reflect on the redemption we have through Jesus Christ, to chase transformation instead of creeping as close as possible to the line, to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, the first application of all these things is to unify the body of Christ. My dad talked about this last week when we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Who remembers who the two bears are from last week? Care Bear and Com Bear. It's okay, no one in the first service remembered either. I'm not sure what that says. <laughs> we are to bear with one another in love, and we are to bear one another's burdens. In 1 Corinthians 12, 25 through 26, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. 
honestly, my dad's sermon last week was so good, I was tempted just to say, okay, we're done, just go listen to his sermon, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll call it a day. But that would be too easy. So let's walk through Romans 12, 4 through 8 a little more and see what truth we can take from it. But seriously, if you didn't hear it yet, go listen to it. You can find it on our website, currentlychristian.org. It's on the media page. Or maybe we should all just go listen to it anyway, since clearly we forgot about the two bears. Um, At the company I work for, everyone has a different job. Sometimes they're similar, but they're never exactly the same. And we all work together to accomplish the goals set by company leadership. And you know what? Sometimes that means I have to do things I really don't want to do. Not illegal things, but things that make me uncomfortable. Like talking to customers over the phone. And they're yelling at me how much my website sucks. And like, oh, I can't get anything done. I'm like, I know, I'm sorry. It's little, well, well, it's not really my fault that you forgot your password. Didn't write it down somewhere. Uh, Giving presentations to large groups. Spending hours comparing people's schedules to set up meetings. I had one day, I kid you not, six hours. They gave me this list of groups of people and they're like, okay, we need calls for an hour next week for all these groups of people. So I have like 10 windows open. I'm going like looking at all these people's schedules and finding time slots, what works best. And it was ridiculous. I did not have fun doing that. Um, or, or this, this is probably my favorite recent one. I had to wear a tie to a meeting with an executive where I sat in the back and didn't say a word the whole time. The whole time I'm sitting there like, why am I here? I'm not taking notes. No one's asking me questions. I have nothing to contribute. Why am I here? Why do I have to wear a tie? <laughs> He's not wearing a tie. No one else is wearing a tie. Well, a church really isn't that different. I have to do things at church that make me uncomfortable sometimes. I used to never go to funerals. Funerals make me uncomfortable. But somewhere along the way, I realized that my church family deserves my love and support, even if it makes me uncomfortable. And that's just one example. Plunging toilets on the spring retreat. Also uncomfortable. The, uh, I don't dress up for church, if that wasn't apparent. Um, the one time I did, I put on a nice polo, slacks, dress shoes, shirt tucked in, had a belt on, looked very nice. The spotlights got stuck on on the worship team, and Kirk Hedger, his face was like glowing, and his eyes were getting red. He's like, can we just like turn these off? And there's a control board back there that normally you use to turn them on, turn them off. It was not working that day. So I, dressed nice as I was, had to climb up in the attic and start unplugging the lights from the, wall, from the socket to get them to turn off. So that's why I don't dress up to church, because you never know when you'll have to climb up in the attic and get covered in insulation to save the eyes of our worship team. As, what? Yeah, yes, my story, I'm sticking 
For as long as you tend KCF or any church where the Bible is preached and lived by, God's going to stretch you. He will. He will grow you. Just a handful of years ago, if my dad had said, hey, Tom, do you want to preach on a Sunday? I would have responded with a resounding, no way. Not in a million years. I'm very glad I am not the same person today that I was back then. But that didn't just happen. I didn't flip a switch and go, okay, I'm good with public speaking now. God placed me in situations where I was forced to stretch a little bit, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. And eventually the idea of public speaking wasn't unthinkable anymore. And here we are today. I want to encourage you to let God stretch you. Let him grow your faith. I believe that the tasks God has picked out for us are more than we can accomplish on our own strength. We need to be relying on him. Our functions may be different from one another, but our purpose is collectively the same. To bring glory to God and advance his kingdom. Last week, my dad talked about how we make a beautiful picture when we're together. The Bible says in this passage we're reading that we are members one of another. And this makes me think of a great woven tapestry. If you stand really, really close, you can see all the individual threads, but when you stand back, you can see the whole thing. And this picture is a little dark and it's kind of hard to see, but it's a pretty magnificent tapestry hanging on the wall. And all the individual threads, they're all, you know, different sizes, lengths, colors, even different weights. Each has an individual job to do. And on their own, these threads are really not anything remarkable. But meshed together, they produce something wondrous. It is God's design for us to work together to pursue his purpose. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 let us consider how to stir one another up, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Finally, let's talk about gifts. Gifts are a pretty major theme in a number of Paul's letters. So Romans isn't very different in that regard. My dad talked a lot about gifts last week about how our gifts are to be used for the common good of the church. I was trying to think of what more I could say about gifts without parroting the exact same thing he said, so two other passages came to my mind. In Ephesians, 2, chapter, or in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26 and 27, and he made from one, na- from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each of us. Our schools in the U.S. today teach that each of us is an accident, a product of random chance. 
that if things had been very, very slightly different, life wouldn't exist at all. And the natural conclusion of that worldview, if you ponder it, is that life doesn't have any meaning. If it happened by accident, then it's really without meaning. And that is a lie, and we need to combat those lies with this truth. That each of us is created by God in his image. He designed each of us from beginning to end. He knew when he created us the struggles we would face, the desires we would have, the dreams we would want to pursue. He gives us the gifts that we have. And he placed each of us exactly where we are and the times we are living in. My Sunday school teacher used to say, God picked you for his team. God picked you. So in days when you doubt you're making very much of a difference, remember that God designed you for the life you live. God designed you to weather the storms. And the beauty of walking in faith with God is that we get to use our gifts for God's glory. God doesn't need us. He is complete in and of himself. He doesn't need us, but he earnestly desires a close personal relationship with each of us. And he desires for us to assist him in his work. I think that this idea, this notion of gifts and purpose and all that, we, we complicate it in the U.S. today. You know, like, oh, if only I knew what my gifts were, I could figure out my purpose, I could do that, and so I gotta go and, you know, strengths finder and personality test, and you got, we gotta do all these things to try and figure out who the heck we are and what we're meant to do. I think it's a lot more simple than that. Um, back when Tara worked for Youth for Christ in Cleveland, uh, she was running a club at Walton Middle School on the west side. And um, younger siblings of the old, the kids in middle school would come and we'd have them be there and do like coloring crafts and stuff because the older kids in middle school were babysitting the younger kids. So if they were younger siblings, they couldn't come and hear about God. And um, I used to go and take pictures because at the time, I preferred the distance that being behind a camera afforded rather than interacting with other living human beings. I'm also glad I'm not the same person now that I was then. And I was taking a picture of this one girl. You know, just, you know, candid. But she, she saw me doing it and she said, I don't want you to take a picture of my crazy face. I was kind of taken aback because... I, I, that's a pretty strong thing for a little kid to say. And I, I, I felt like it was kind of lame, but I was like, well, uh, I think you have a very nice face. And her face lit up with the biggest smile. And it broke my heart because I don't know if she hears that from her parents. I didn't know her story, I didn't know her name. Like, I don't even know if she has parents in her life to tell her she's beautiful, that she is loved, to take care of her. I, I would not say I'm an encourager, but in that moment, God used me to encourage someone's life. 
God will provide ways for you to use your gifts if you look. I was thinking about sharing this the first service, and I didn't, but I'm going to share it now. My older brother, Danny, a little bit of his story. When he graduated high school, he interned in Texas for a ministry called Teen Mania for two years. Came back, finished his degree in criminal justice, and um, I forget what year the song came out, but there's a song by Sarah Groves called When the Saints, and it's a riff on When the Saints Go Marching In. And she's presenting it as like a, a vision she's having of the church and what the church is doing. And one of the lines in the bridge, she's listing off all these things that the church has done throughout history that's made an impact on the world. And there's a snippet of a line, one of the lines that says, I see the young girl huddled on the brothel floor and I see the man with a passion come kicking down that door. And he chose, uh, he interned with an organization called the International Justice Mission for two and a half years. He did um, uh, half a year in DC in their headquarters and he did two years in India. And um, that just that little snippet of a song took him down a path of service. He he was he was listening. You know that that churned his heart just enough. He knew what he had to do. And along the way, he met his wife Naloma, and she works for IGM. And right now, they're back in India trying to figure out how they can stay there and keep serving God there. In between, he was a police officer for a few years. And now, actually, I think this week or next week, he's taking his certification. Um, he's been uh, pursuing cybersecurity because he wants to do digital forensics and help, um, potentially help combat slavery that way. So I bet if you asked him when he was senior in high school, where he would end up by the time he hit his early 30s, he, he, he could not have drawn that plan out. Listen for the Lord. He will put you right where he wants you. He's going to give you a challenge that he's equipped you to overcome. Paul understood how important it was for the local church in Rome to be united in their faith. He didn't try and like force the coming together of people or try and arbitrate or feed the division. He didn't elevate one side or the other. He simply pointed to the gospel, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And he confidently argued that humility, service, and a daily commitment to be transformed by God are the starting points to heal that disunity. Each of us is a thread, uniquely created by God, but we are designed to work with others instead of just standing on our own. And what we have as a church family is the opportunity to create something truly amazing together. Let's pray. I saw that. (laughs) Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for my brothers and sisters gathered here today. Thank you for this new day. I give you praise for the glorious weather we're going to have for our picnic.
Lord, thank you that you've created us to live in community with each other. As we go into this week, we ask that you help us remember that we are to be humble, that we are to be transformed, and that we are to be a living sacrifice for you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.